But I want to share with you a personal story from our family. And the first time it occurred, actually, was right when COVID was starting, uh, Katie had, uh, she got this terrible cough like two, three weeks before uh, COVID was a thing. Um, and she just, it just wouldn't go away. It was like the worst cough, cough she ever had. And then when she finally felt like it had gone away, it was maybe like the week that everything kind of shut down. You weren't supposed to go outside. You just wear a mask. You know, you know, don't go anywhere if you have any symptoms. And she's like, okay, it's finally died down enough. Like, we're, we can go to the store and get some groceries. So we went out, me, her, and Hudson. And uh, Hudson's our son. He's four um, right now. How, I don't know. However, he was in COVID. That was uh, in 2020. And so we go, and all of a sudden, Katie has this huge coughing fit. And we're just like, oh, no, you know, like, because that was the time when everyone was like, you know, somebody's coughing, like, you know, scatter. Um, and, you know, maybe it's still a little bit like that sometimes. But it was like, and then there was this person that came up and said, um, excuse me, I just have one question. We're like, oh, no, we're thinking she's going to say, it was a guy, the guy was going to say, like, how dare you come out here with a cough, you know? And, but they said, how did you know he needed glasses? I'm like, what? Because Hudson has glasses, and we're like, oh, we're so relieved somebody's not coming to, you know, yell at us about Katie's coughing. But they're like, how? Why? You know, how do you know I needed glasses? And so he's been wearing glasses since he was like one. Um, and people ask, that's the most common question we get. How did you know I needed glasses? Because for us, we're like, hey, it's blurry. Uh, I think something's wrong with my eyes. But he couldn't say that. He was a baby. He didn't know any better. Um, and, but we could tell because one of his eyes kind of like. Um, would turn outward, especially at when he was looking at different angles, like looking up. And so we told the doctor, like, what's a, you know, his eye turns sometimes. What's up with this? And it, it ended up being that one of his eyes was more, um, I think, nearsighted is than the other one. And so when he was looking at certain distances, that one eye, like, couldn't keep up, so it would kind of drop out, and just the one eye was being used. And then he needed glasses in order for him to, uh, you know, correct that, because otherwise he would just go blind in that one eye, because his body would be like, no, nah, that's not working. We don't need it anymore. And when we went to the eye doctor, uh, the eye doctor told us that sometimes kids come in for their eye check, like at kindergarten, I guess that's like a routine thing, and when they're asked to cover one eye, uh, the doctor will cover it, and the, they'll say, oh, that's my bad eye. And the parents will be like, wait, what? You have a bad eye? Like, they didn't know their kid had a bad eye you know, until that kindergarten checkup when they're like, oh, that's my bad eye, you know, that's the, that's the one that I can't see out of well. And the parents are surprised, and the issue, was, the reality is that they were living with faulty vision the whole time. But for them, they just thought it was normal. They weren't seeing the world clearly or how it ought to be perceived, and they, but they just thought it was normal. Like, oh, you know, I just have a bad eye. Like, that's just how life is. And as we jump back into this series in the Gospel according to Luke, we're like in the second chunk of it, um, chapters 9 through 19. And we've called this series uh, To Seek and to Save. Uh, because in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, well, why did I come? And he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. And so this is to seek and to save part two. And this is uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, starting in chapter 9. He says uh, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and then it takes them all those chapters. This is like a you know three, I, I'm just kind of guessing, three-week pilgrimage with other people that were going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And if you know Jesus' story, that the final week of his life was when the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem, and then that's the week that he died. And so chapters 9 through 19 are his trip to Jerusalem, his pilgrimage, with all these other people going up with him. And a lot of what it's about is God's kingdom. What's it like, and how do you get in on it? Who's involved? Who's included? And so Jesus tells a lot of stories, a lot of parables. He has a lot of dinners. Some people call it the Battle of the Banquets, because as he's going along, he's eating at different people's houses. Like, he's not at home, right? He's on this pilgrimage eating at people's houses. People have heard of him. They invite him to eat. 
And then he gets in these discussions about like what's God's kingdom like and who's going to be included. And we started this little uh, chunk that we're in right now. Um, we're just covering chapter 11, 29 to 36 today. But actually the whole um, kind of block is 11, 14 through 36. And verses 14 and 16 of chapter 11 set up uh, three different discussions that Jesus has. And so let me just reread those um, two verses for us to remind us what's going on here. So chapter 11, verse 14 says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. And the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so the event that happens is Jesus casts out a demon, and there's three different types of responses. You see the first uh, that people said uh, he casts out demons. Uh, by, oh, first, the first response is some people marveled. Some people say, well, he's casting out demons by the power of demons, by the power of the devil. And the third response is people try to test him by seeking a sign from heaven. And so we've covered the, the first two, um, the people who attributed what he does to Satan, the people who are amazed by what he does, and today we're covering uh, the third of people asking for a sign from heaven. And what I find interesting about this scene is that uh, there's kind of different levels of people's commitment to Jesus or how they're responding to him. You have people that are like his core disciples that are like the 12 guys that he's really relying on and building into. Like That's the core. But then you have this group of committed people, like people that maybe aren't that core, but you have people who are committed. They're like, I'm following him, but I'm maybe not at that center. But then you have this crowd around him of people that are like not sure about him. Some people are curious. Um, some people are trying to basically like condemn him and are after him. They're critics. And there's some people who've been cured um, or are looking for a cure from demons or sickness. And so there's all these people surrounding Jesus and responding in different ways. And we're looking at the people who ask for a sign from heaven. And Jesus addresses each group that responds to him and challenges them to give, to give a different response, so that they have an inadequate response to him. And so really what we're seeing in this passage is, how does Jesus want us to respond to him, uh, especially his miracles and his deliverance from demons? And so this passage is about bad vision, uh, eyes that aren't working right, but people who don't realize it, that they think it's normal. The way that they're seeing the world, the way they're seeing Jesus, they have this faulty vision just like um, some of those kids that are going at kindergarten to get their vision checked. It's like, oh, that's my bad eye. Um, but these uh, people, they have faulty vision, but they just think it's normal. They don't know that there's a problem. And so I want to just give you a question, and you can write it down in your bulletin or your phone or however you take notes. But has God done enough for you to trust him? And maybe initially you would probably say, well, yeah, like that's obvious. But just to reflect to yourself, has God done enough for you to trust him. And that's especially important in moments where trust is required, right? When life is going fine, it's like, yeah, I trust God. But then all of a sudden, if something goes poorly or asked to do something that's uncomfortable or risky, now it's like, well, am I going to trust God in that situation? Has God done enough for you to trust him? And so we're going to look at this passage, and so we're going to jump down. We read uh, chapter 11, verses 14 through 16, which set it up. But we're going to focus on um, verses 29 through 36. And so here uh, it, it says this. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so first let's ask, well, okay, they're an evil generation. Why? Because they're seeking after a sign. 
And so the question we should be asking is, uh, what's so evil about asking Jesus or God for a sign uh, to prove himself? What is so evil about that? Um, and what do they want him to prove? Well, essentially that he's from God. Like, you're doing these things, you're saying these things. Where do you get this authority? Like, where did God send you, or are you coming from somewhere else? And you see some people are saying, he gets the authority from the devil. Um, and another person says, well, blessed was your mom. It's kind of like you have good genes or, you know, good upbringing or something. But there are people are asking, like, show us a sign that you are from God. And so what's evil about testing Jesus by asking for a sign? Um, well, the word testing takes us back to chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Um, that was, you know, probably two years ago now that we looked at that. But it's when Jesus, he's about to start his ministry. He's baptized. Uh, by John the Baptist and the Father, God the Father. Oh, look, we have our image up here. We don't need this this week, but uh, we talked about it. Um, God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son, this is God the Son. And then the Holy Spirit comes on him saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Spirit descends on him as a seal of God's love and of God's uh, just sealing of him. This is my Son. And so, and then Jesus immediately is led into the wilderness for 40 days and we're told to be tempted by the devil. In the third temptation, uh, the devil says, all of them basically start this way, you fear the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Like, he's at this top of this big building, throw yourself down, because if you are really the Son of God, God won't let anything happen to you. He's going to stop you from being harmed. He's going to protect you. If you're the Son of God, well, prove it, and prove that God's your Father and that he really cares about you. And then Jesus says to him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so this word testing in this chapter takes us back to that when Jesus is tempted to test God and he says, no, I recognize what you're doing. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But what Jesus is doing there is he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so this brings us back to Deuteronomy 6.16 where we hear the words, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Okay, what happened at Massa. Massa takes us back to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And there, Israel has been enslaved for 400 years um, by, the, by the, uh, Egypt, by that nation. And then God uses a man named Moses to bring them out of slavery. He says, I'm going to send you in, and I'm going to bring you out of slavery. And, you know, Moses has the ten plagues, there's the parting of the Red Sea, and there's this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night that leads them. They like, have this physical manifestation of God's presence leading them out. Uh, and then they're traveling to the promised land. God says, I'm going to get bring you to the land that I promised your ancestors 400 years ago. Now it's time I'm going to give it to you. And this is the you know where we have the nation state of Israel today, that land, Palestine, right there on, uh, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea there. And on the way there, though, on their way to the promised land, they've got to go from Egypt up north to the promised land. Uh, they don't have water. They're in the wilderness. And so the people begin grumbling and complaining and quarreling with Moses. And they say to him, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And they grumbled against Moses further. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then Moses prays and God says, okay, take your staff, strike a rock, and water is going to come out of this rock miraculously for these people to drink. And you would think that that moment would convince them, okay, we can trust God. We're in this wilderness, but God is with us. If he wants to, he can make water come out of that rock or wherever, you know, wherever it is from, that God can do what we need to provide for us in this wilderness. And then we're told 
that Moses called that place, the name of that place, Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so you would think this generation that experienced the exodus, uh, ten plagues, you know, wiping out the nation, not completely, but, you know, decimating the nation of Egypt, and then coming out the Red Sea parts, and they've got this pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and you would think we're in the wilderness, like, God's going to take care of us, he's with us, but really what they're questioning, is God among us or not? Like, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? There's no water, and so they tested the Lord. And they did it so many times that God eventually didn't allow them to enter the promised land. He said, you're not going to enter. Your children are going to. Uh, you, you forfeited your, this privilege that now you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until you all die off, and then your children are going to get the promised land instead of you. And that 40 years should also trigger in you, well, Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. 40 years, interesting tie-in there. We don't have time to go into that. But later in Psalm 95, 8 through 11, uh, we read that the psalmist is saying, hey, remember how these guys tested God with their disobedience and their unfaithfulness and uh, didn't trust in him? Like, don't be like them. And then Hebrews chapter 3 uh, quotes Psalm 95. That, so it's like Psalm 95 written by David. Don't be like that generation. Hebrews 3 in the New Testament quotes Psalm 95 and says, don't be like that generation. If you don't trust God, if you aren't obedient, if you refuse to trust him, then uh, he's not going to let you inherit the promised land. But these words, testing, take us back also all the way to the garden, the beginning of time, where the first humans, Adam and Eve, God creates this garden of goodness, and he gives them one rule, which I interpret this rule to be, don't live life on your own terms by eating from that tree. If you eat from that tree that I'm telling you not to eat from, it's, you know, literal tree, symbolic tree, whatever it was, it basically is symbolic of living life on your own terms. Are you going to trust God? Or not? Are we going to trust him to define what's good and what's bad? And so they know they're not supposed to eat from this tree. They're not supposed to live life on their own terms. Uh, God says, you'll die if you do. If you're going to live life on your own terms, you're going to die. It's not going to go well for you. And then the serpent, the devil, in the form of a serpent, comes along. And he says, well, God really isn't going to let you eat from any of these trees? Like, he made this whole place and he's not going to let you eat from it? And then the woman, the first woman, says... Well, he, he said we could eat from all of them except that one, and if we eat from it, we'll die. And then the serpent says, are you really going to die? Um, so first he questions, like, God's really not going to let you eat from all these great trees? And now she gets, he gets her talking about the one tree they're not supposed to eat from, tells him the consequence, and then the serpent says, you're not really going to die if you eat from it. And he's saying, uh, no, you won't really die. Uh, God just doesn't want you to be like him. And so the serpent is tempting, the devil's tempting the first humans, put God to the test. He's told you this. Can you really trust him? He's holding on. You're not going to die. No, he told you that. Why don't you just put him to the test? You're not going to die. And so we see this pattern in Scripture. Jesus trusted God in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil instead of testing God like Adam and Eve and Israel and like all of us do. If you're the son of God, prove it is what the devil said to Jesus. And now he has a group of people again saying, hey, give us a sign to prove you are who you say you are. And if we look back at Luke 4, when the devil's saying, if you're the son of God, prove it, we see that it's satanic and demonic to say to God, prove it. To say to the son of God, prove that you're the son of God. Because that's the exact language that Satan slash the devil uses. 
And it was a direct attack in chapter 4, and now it's an indirect attack here through other people. Prove you're from God. Prove he's the source of your power and authority. So that was the longest section we're looking at uh, in terms of explaining it. And then he goes on and says, uh, this generation is an evil generation, verse 29. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so we're all wondering, what's the sign of Jonah? Um, in Matthew's Gospel, he makes it a little more explicit. But if you don't know the story of Jonah, um, he's a prophet in the Old Testament. God says, hey, I want you to pick up, leave Israel, and go to the nation of Nineveh. And if you're familiar with prophets, the prophets really didn't go to other nations. The prophets spoke within the nation of Israel. Prophets are for God's people, which, side note, when people claim that they are being prophets by denouncing all the people in the world, uh, it's really not the default role of a prophet in the Bible. A prophet is talking to God's people when they stop listening to God. Um, So that's just a side note. But he said, go to Nineveh, this is kind of like an exception, and instead of going to Nineveh, he runs the opposite way. He's like, I'm not going there. I'm going the opposite way. Because Jonah knows these people in Nineveh, um, these are the Assyrians. And they are brutal and they are ruthless. Some of the most immoral, immoral people at that time in the world. Um, and so he runs, gets on a ship, and then the, there's this huge storm. And all the people on the ship are saying, like, we're going to die. Let's figure out who's made the gods mad. And then it comes down to Jonah. They figure out it's Jonah. And he's like, just toss me over. Uh, because that'll take care of the problem. And maybe he's thinking, like, good, I'll just get out of this whole thing. I'll drown in the sea. But God takes a big fish and grabs Jonah and saves him. And then the fish basically pukes him out onto the shore. And then God says, go to Nineveh. We're going to try this again. Like, Let's do a little redo of the situation. And then he goes. He preaches a message. And he barely talks to them, at least what's recorded for us. And the whole city repents. And then... And so there's two points of connection with the story and Jesus. Um, Matthew's Gospel makes clear, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, so Jesus will be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and then he will come out again resurrected. And so that could be the sign of Jonah. Like The only proof you're going to get that I am who I say I am is that I'm going to prick my death and my resurrection. I'm going to die and come back again to talk about it second connection with the story is the preaching and the repentance. That Jonah was sent to preach repentance uh, and to, to preach to a people and they repented. And so Jesus has also been sent to preach and to bring about repentance. And so those are the connections with the story. Um, but I think there's also a connection with the lesson of Jonah. And this is kind of my own thing. I didn't really see this in any of the, of the resources I read. But um, in Luke chapter 15, when we get to the story of the prodigal son, I can't go into it, but maybe if you you know, just think about how the story of the prodigal son is very similar to the story of Jonah. And so Jonah, he preaches to the city, and then he goes up on a hill, and he sits there, and he watches, waiting for God's judgment, because he's like, these people are evil. Surely God's going to, like, basically wants to watch them burn in hell. He's like, I just want to sit up here and watch this, God. I'm going to enjoy the show with my popcorn and my, my soda that are overpriced, of course. Uh, but, you know, anyway... If you go to the movies, you know what that means. Uh, and so, but what happens is they repent, and then God relents of the disaster he says he's going to bring upon them. And then what is Jonah? Jonah is mad. He says to God, I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd be gracious and merciful. Like, that's just the kind of God you are, that you would let these people off the hook. And so he's mad at God. And then God says, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry that I saved them? And so we have in the story of Jonah, Jonah was an entitled Israelite, 
angry about God saving undeserving people. And so what do we see around Jesus? We see entitled Israelites, most often religious leaders, angry that Jesus is offering salvation to undeserving people. And he tells Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, to show this that this is what's going on. This is unlikely to be the sign that's being talked about here, but there's a parable, parallel with the lesson of the story. And then Jesus goes on, he says, uh, verse 34, As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man, referring to himself, be to this generation. Verse 31, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so when Solomon, he's a, from like a thousand years before Jesus, when he became king, uh, God said, ask me for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And he prayed, ask God for wisdom. And God said, that was a really good choice. Uh, I'm going to give you wisdom. And so he became known for it. And so this non-Israelite queen from the south, who's not worshipping the, the one true God, but is worshipping um, pagan gods, comes and travels to hear him, and she marvels at his wisdom. And Jesus is saying, look, this lady came from who, who knows where, not even an Israelite, came, marveled at the wisdom Solomon had, and, he, and he's saying, something greater than Solomon is here. Someone with greater wisdom. And then he goes on, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Because of Jonah's preaching, some of the most immoral and violent people repented, and we're saved. Now we're only given like Jonah's like five word sermon. I'm assuming Jesus was a better preacher than Jonah, um, just based on him being, you know, one of the most read people, or maybe not even the mo- one of the most read person of all of history. Uh, that he was a better preacher than Jonah. And he's saying, look, these immoral, violent people repented at those that meager sermon that Jonah gave, and they were saved. And now look, a person with a greater message than Jonah is here. And he could have gone and said something greater than everything is here. Someone greater than Moses. Moses led you in the Exodus. Someone greater than Moses is here, leading a new Exodus. Something greater than the temple is here, the place where this presence of God was. And I'm the new temple, that God dwells in me. I'm God become flesh, that I am something greater than the temple here. There's a greater priest here. The priests were uh, the ones who were representatives of the people before God. And look, I'm going to be a better representative than all the priests, something better than all the priests is here. Something better than all the sacrifices was here. You had to do them over again and again and again, repeatedly for covering your sins. I'm going to sacrifice myself once for all time for you to be covered of your sins. Someone greater than David, your best king is here, that I am the better son, the better heir in the line of David. But why does he pick these two? Why does he pick Solomon and Jonah? Of all the things he could have picked, you would think the most natural thing would be like, remember the Exodus? That was a big deal. Uh, Something bigger than that is here. But he picks... These two random things, like Solomon, this, you know, it's like, I don't know how many verses, like five verses. You're talking about this queen of the south comes and goes, marvels at Solomon. Jonah's four chapters, um, and his sermon is meager. Why is it that he picks those two things? Well, this is an example of two non-Israelite pagans, which isn't, you know, a derogatory term. That's just people who worship a bunch of gods. Two non-Israelite pagans see and hear God through a human, and they responded to it. And Jesus is saying, you have something greater than both of those standing right in front of you, and you are unresponsive, demanding a sign. 
Therefore, the queen of the south and the Ninevites will stand over you in judgment, saying, we responded to way less than you're getting. Um, so what's the deal here? Like, you're asking for a sign? Like, haven't he given you enough? Like, literally, this is, you know, we had hardly anything. And then he moves on, talks about greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, and he talks about light in verses 11, uh, sorry, verses 33 through 36. He says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. And just to be fully honest, verses 33 through 36, I've read those, I don't know how many times, over the course of my life. And they're always perplexing to me. I mean, Connor and I were talking about it, trying to, I just shared with him, like, I've always been perplexed by these verses, and we were trying to get into, like, the mindset of what's going on here. So here's what I've got for you. Verse 33 is talking about a pro- I'm providing unhidden light. Look, I'm a light. It's not being hidden under a basket. It's available. It's accessible. You can see it. All the signs you want are there already, out there, plain to see, not hidden. And then verses 34 to 35, he addresses them, showing their problem, or giving them a warning. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. When it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. So basically, if you have good eyes, you can see the light, right? Uh, and like those kindergartners, that would be like, oh, that's my bad eye. It's like, oh, you weren't like seeing everything you're supposed to see, or you're colorblind. You weren't seeing light and color correctly. Like, uh, you, if you have a good eye, you'll see the light. But if you have evil eyes, if you're an evil generation, you won't see the light, even though the light is there, that plenty of it is being provided. You're closing your eyes to it. You're blind to it. You're in darkness. And the light you think you have is actually darkness, which means... You're deceived. Deception means, I think I have the truth, but what it is is actually a lie. And so he has this group of people who are seeing him, and they don't see, this is what we've been praying for and longing for and waiting for our whole lives, that God would come to us and rescue us and redeem us and restore us as his people. And they don't see it. And they think, actually, this is a guy that needs to be tested. God himself is standing in front of him, and they're like, Prove it, you know, prove it that you, show us a sign that you really are, you know, who you say you are. And then he ends and says, verse 36, If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And so if you have healthy eyes, you'll see the light, and that light's going to change you. You'll become light. That's why we talked, we sang marvelous light. It's marvelous light we're running into the light of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be in Jesus, the good news, the gospel um, of Jesus Christ. And so what's scary about this situation is that God is standing right in front of them and they didn't recognize him. God's standing right in front of them, the God that they wanted to come their whole lives and they don't recognize him. What they hoped for and prayed for was happening and these people missed it. And a big reason is because they objected to the way God was working the kind of people God was pursuing and hanging out with and letting into his kingdom, the people he was seeking and saving, which is good news for us that uh, they'd object to us entering. Uh, I don't know all of your genealogical histories, but I'm guessing most of us are not Jewish. Most of us are not Israelites. Uh, And so these are Jewish people, Israelites, saying, we don't like these people that you're letting in. Jesus tells two, two stories. Yeah, remember these people back in the Old Testament that were not Jewish and they really responded, like all of us, they probably would object to us being let into the kingdom of God because we're Gentiles, non-Jewish. 
And so God is seeking and saving people, but they're not the people that they want him to be seeking and saving, they're the people they thought he would seek and save. And this is scary because our question is, for us is, if God was standing right in front of us, would we recognize him? Or, you know, can get really practical, if Jesus walked in here and started doing his Jesus stuff, would we be like, dude, you're kind of disrupting things. Like, we have a way of doing things around here. That's not the kind of stuff we do. Like, are we open and receptive uh, to welcome God when we see him? So for us, if God was standing right in front of us, would we recognize him? And I'm giving that as an if, but it's really uh, God is standing right in front of us. And do we recognize him? It's a reality that God has revealed himself through creation, Read Psalm 19, read Romans 1, that God has revealed himself the heavens and the earth, declare the glory and the praise of God. The Bible, God has revealed himself in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying when you stare at the Bible, you're staring at God. These are God's words revealing himself to us. But Jesus, that we have Jesus in the Bible. There is the Old Testament without the revelation of Jesus. And then Jesus, he says, if you've seen me, you have seen God. I'm the glory of God become flesh. And then even more, we have the Spirit. Jesus said it was better for him to leave so that we'd be given the Holy Spirit so that God's presence, our ability to know him, wouldn't be outside of us, but it actually be inside of us, that he'd be closer to us than even our own thoughts, that he'd be communicating to our spirit. And so we have creation, the Bible, Jesus, the Spirit, and each other, that we're made in the image of God. And then when we're redeemed and being renewed in the image of God, and we have the Spirit within us as a church body, God calls us the temple that not this place, not Dortons where we used to meet, not this physical place, but us as God's people are the temple, meaning we're the place where people come to meet God, the people. Uh, that's where his presence dwells. And we could say people with a lot less uh, saw, heard, and responded. <laughs> Every generation in history saw, uh, sorry, at, uh, before Jesus, um, saw, heard, and heard less than we do, and they responded to it. And what I find easy, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, I think it would have been easy for the people, the disciples in the first century, to read the stories in the Old Testament and think, wow, what would it have been like to see that? How easy would it have been to have faith if we saw that? Man, the parting of the Red Sea? Uh, I mean, I don't know about you, I haven't seen any seas part lately. And so people in the first century, disciples, might have been like, can you imagine what it was like to be following Moses out of Egypt, all those plagues? Like, we've been enslaved by these people. Now they're giving us their gold, like, so we can go and worship God out in the wilderness. And, like, the, oh, they're all going to kill us. Their army's coming behind us. Oh, God just parts the Red Sea. And then they go into the sea, and it collapses on them. And then they see the Mount Sinai, fire and cloud and thundering. They see God's presence, and they say, Moses, don't let him talk to us. You go talk to him, because if we listen to him, we're going to die. They're, like, so terrified. God's presence is so real. And when I read stories like that in the first century, and they might have been looking back and thinking, man, if we saw that, how easy would it be to trust God? But we saw in the Exodus generation, they go in the wilderness and they say, would you lead us out here to die, Moses? Like, where's God at? They didn't trust God, even though they had all that. And we may look back on the stories in the New Testament and think it would have been so much easier. Man, if you could have been right there physically with Jesus... He just casts out a demon. He's healing people, like walking by funerals and being like, I have compassion on this widow, so I'm going to raise her dead son from the dead. Um, Jesus being resurrected. And yet, 
you see in this passage that they're seeing it. And we might think it would be so easy to believe if we saw what they saw, but they saw it, and they didn't trust. They didn't believe. They didn't have faith. And we have more than they do. And we often say to God, uh, you have not yet done enough for me to trust you. You just need to do some more. If you would just give me a sign, it would be easier. Prove that you're real, that you're with me, that you care, that you're listening. We say to God, prove yourself. You haven't done enough yet. And we have this assumption. We have the assumption that the more obvious God makes himself, the easier it will be to trust him. That's our assumption, right? The more obvious God makes himself, the easier it will be to trust him. And we have a whole book over thousands of years, different generations, different groups of people, that just shows us that isn't the case. God being obvious doesn't make us trust him more. And we often assume the problem is with him, but what if we assumed uh, that God has made himself known, that the light isn't hidden, and the problem, rather, is with our seeing. The light is there, God's made himself known, but the problem is our vision. Maybe this is an obvious question, but why do we look for Waldo? Anybody have an idea? Why do we look for Waldo? Somebody asked us to. <laughs> Wasn't what I was expecting, but okay. That's, somebody asked where he was, so we need to find him. But we look for Waldo because he's in there, right? He's on the page. Like, you don't open the Where's Waldo book and you're like, I don't know if Waldo's in here anywhere. It's probably not even used for looking for him, but you'll hunt for hours. I hope you didn't spend hours, but you'll hunt and hunt and hunt because you'll know he's on this page somewhere. Where is he? I just got to find him. And we hunt for Waldo because we know that he's there. He's there even if you don't see him. And the problem is with us, not with Waldo. He's on the page. We just need to keep looking. And for me, that gives me hope that, not Waldo, but if I'm thinking if God is there, it's not like, well, he must not be here today. But if it's like, God, I should be seeing him and hearing him and experiencing. And if the problem is with me, then it's, well, I'm just not, something's out of whack with me. And so that means the thing that I'm longing for, which is to hear God and see him and walk with him and experience him, is available to me. But there's just something on my end that I'm not doing. And so instead of doubting until you see, trust he's there and you don't see him. Yet. That little yet gives me... And Jesus said, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, and it's like, well, what are you talking about, Jesus? We all have ears to hear, and we all have eyes to see. I'm hearing you now, I'm seeing you now. But he's saying, no, really, do you have ears to hear what I'm saying to you? Do you have eyes to see what I'm showing you? And we, he's saying, are you seeing the ways God has and is making himself seen? Are you listening to the ways God has and is making himself heard? And I, just as a little um, couple images to end here because how can we miss God standing right in front of us right like we might think like well if God's present everywhere and he says he dwells within me and he's with us how can we miss God if he's standing right in front of us and there's a lot of instances where that actually happens in real life so this is a little more biblical than where's Waldo but um, this is a seek and find New Testament Bible stories and I was doing it with Hudson a couple days ago so he's four and it'll have things, you know, like baby Jesus is born. And then it goes, you know, find one baby Jesus, find two hungry foxes, find three shepherd crooks. And it goes one through ten, goes through all of them. And Hudson, sometimes he's, like, already done it, maybe a couple times. So he's, like, I, like, ask him where it was. And he's, like, there, there, there. I'm, like, whoa. And then some of the other ones that kind of get up, like, we well, got to find seven of these. He'll find, like, five. 
and he can't find the last two. But it's like I saw the last two like five minutes ago. Um, and so what's the issue? Is it that his eyes aren't working? Like, are they not on the page or his eyes not working? No, they're on the page. His eyes are working. But I've just had more time to learn how to look for things, to be trained in it, for what to look for. And let me just add another example. In hunting, I, ho- I was hoping Jonathan would be here because I was going to puff him up a little bit with how great of an outdoorsman he is. But, sorry, Jonathan, if you listen later, uh, you can. this will be a test. If he comes back and says, thanks, I'll know he listens when he's not here on the, on the sermon recorder. But anyway, if you went out into the woods with my dad, and my dad has been an outdoorsman all his life, hunted, fished, trapped, like almost anything you think of, he's probably done it. And it's like when there's been times when he's at my house and we're like working on something in the yard, and he'll just like stop and be like, Cardinal. I'm like, I stop. Oh, I guess there is a, a bird singing 200 feet away. Um, I wasn't paying attention to the bird singing, but my dad has his ears just tuned in to look, noticing wildlife. If you walk through the woods, he could show you all kinds of stuff. If you're hunting with him, you might be like, Are there any animals out here? And he would be like, Well, look, there's some poop. Maybe you could find that. There's some poop. There's some tracks. Um, oh, here's a deer bed. This is where one laid down last night. Oh, you touch it. Oh, it's still a little warm, or like the snow's melted. This is fresh. Um, or oh, here's a, you know here's where a buck left the um, you know rubbing his antlers on a tree. Like oh, here's a scrape. This was uh, you know deer. You know there's all kinds of things to look for, and I could point some of that stuff out to you. But my dad's gonna be like a hundred times better at it. And then if you, I grew up so I grew up in the outdoors, hunting, fishing, trapping. Um, but the point I want to make about that is that I'm not as good as my dad, and I'm probably not as good as Jonathan. I was going to ask him how long he's been hunting, and I think I've hunted in longer than he has. But the key is that he's been doing it recently. He's kept at it. I haven't done it for a while, and so at this point, it's kind of like you know a, a clothes line will get slack, and you got to tighten it up. It's like my ability to spot things out in the wild are going to be less than his because he's currently doing it, and he's kept up with it. And then I asked Katie if I could say this about her. Um, she, you know, when I always joke, like, well, she had never seen a live deer until she came to my parents' house. Not true. I like to exaggerate. But there's a lot of things she hadn't seen until she came to my parents' house because she grew up in a city, but she did grow up camping, and so she's comfortable outdoors. And one of the things she learned was watch out for raccoons when you're camping. You've got to get the windows up. So she knew all these tips about camping that I didn't really know because we didn't camp very much. Um, but we can keep going down, and I'm sure there's some of you that are like, I couldn't tell a deer turd from a bear turd. You know, sorry. I probably shouldn't have said it like that. Feces, sorry. Droppings, uh, yeah, that's, sorry. I'll, I'll clean that up on the recording. Um, but anyway, you, you're probably like, I couldn't tell you any of that stuff. But the point is, like, if we're walking in the woods, all that stuff is there, right? It's all there for you to observe, to see these are all the signs that there are animals present here. They're all hiding because they're scared of us tromping through the woods, but they're signs that they're, that they're there. And so it's like for Jesus, it's like all of this is here. It's all there. All the signs are there. You're just not seeing it. And so we can have hope that it's like, well, if we just learn what to look for and assume God is here, God is present, God is interacting with us, and he's showing us what to do, uh, it's just that maybe we're not tuned into it. And I want us to do a little exercise to help each other learn this, but let me let me just pray um, and as we end this time looking at this and as we move into trying to help each other learn how we might be able to do this better. Father, thank you for speaking to us from your word. Thank you for 
revealing yourself to us. You didn't have to do that, but you've revealed yourself so that we may know you. So Lord, would you let us be attuned to see and to hear the ways you are present with us and in us, around us. Since then we pray. Amen.